My name is Billy Seidman. I'm a New York-based songwriter, guitarist, music producer, educator, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues. So, Billy, how did you, how did you first get into music? Uh, I think that story is a very typical story for uh, people who were uh, baby boomers. Um, heard the Beatles, 63. Uh, we heard their music, but we, we heard they had insanely long hair. Um, so this wasn't the saw. Ed Sullivan show yet? Yeah, this is prior to the Ed Sullivan show. Okay. You know, they started playing uh, 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 A Star Standing There and Hold Your Hand. And uh, it just fired the imaginations of millions or hundreds of thousands of kids who ended up becoming, you know, the next generation of session players and songwriters. Did you want to pick up the guitar immediately? Absolutely. I, I got a Stella guitar. Um, I remember it was, it, was, it was pretty hard to play. It wasn't very good. And I remember uh, putting masking tape on the guitar with my name and putting sparkle stars on it. Okay, so you decided that you wanted to learn how to play the guitar. How, how easy was that journey? Uh, pretty easy, because there were a lot of kids like me, and there were a couple of kids older than me in the neighborhood who taught guitar, so I sought them out and learned some chords. What was interesting about learning how to play Beatles songs uh, off a record is that most of the Beatles songs at that time, uh, they tuned their guitar down to D. They tuned their guitar down a whole step. So if you tried to learn a Beatles song, it was very frustrating because it sounded you, you couldn't easily find, you know, the chords that they were playing G's, but you'd have to play an F chord. So it took you know it took many many years later to <laughs> figure that out. Um, at what point did you think I want to pursue music as a career? Uh, probably around uh, thirteen or fourteen. Really? And yeah. did you have a sense of what that would be? Um, well, I just knew, I started writing songs, and I, I used to, like, entertain friends on the way home from school, walking home from school with funny lyrics and ideas, and, and we started bands. We were, you know, I've been in bands since the time I was uh, maybe ten and a half. So you started writing songs pretty early. Um, at what point did you appreciate the power of songs? Well, I think I always appreciated it. I, I didn't, I probably didn't articulate it, but I, um, until years later when I learned enough to, to, uh, to begin to um, critique them or understand how the mechanics of how they were put together. But the sheer, but that's the beauty of a great song. There's no thinking involved. It's pure emotional reaction. Okay, so why do you think that is? Because oftentimes when I talk to musicians, they tell me about the song and, and often the better songs and sometimes hits that just comes through them as opposed to the songs that they work on for 10 years that often tend to go nowhere or they really struggle with it. Can you explain that? Uh, yeah, I, I can in pretty simple terms. Uh, if you think about it, songs are written as a response to events. Mm -hmm. So what events are really, what events matter to you? And what do you, a lot of songwriters historically write, and, and I'll write if, to Dear Diary, <laughs> this happened. Right. Uh, uh, sometimes you have a solution. Sometimes it's just you're, you just need to uh, 
come to terms or come to acceptance of a situation you're in and writing a song is a perfect way to cope or to you know therapize or you know have a therapy session with yourself to just uh, come to accept the circumstances you're in so that's certainly one way to write a song so when you first started writing songs you make funny songs going home from school at what point did you think I'm not a bad songwriter I have a gift for this well, I was fortunate because I was watching my father, who was a songwriter, uh, basically work through his process and have pianists over and work on developing Broadway shows and um, uh, just oh, and saw the progress of how that worked. Uh, it wasn't my music, but I could appreciate uh, the storytelling and I could appreciate the melody writing. Can you talk a little bit about your dad and, and his songwriting? Yeah, he was an amateur songwriter. He was as a as a child. Uh, he grew up in uh, in Queens. Uh, he uh, he was a singer. He was uh, his family was very Orthodox, religious, and uh, Jews. And um, uh, he was uh, he made a lot of money for the family during the Depression, uh, sing as a singer. And so uh, when he when his voice dropped, you know he uh, he got out of that. But he always kept that love of of, of music alive and avid theater goer uh, and an avid writer, always writing good solid melody writer. Can I ask what you might have learned from your dad as a songwriter? It's more inherent than anything else, just because I was around. It's more of the the uh, I mean nature nurture probably fifty fifty. Okay, so initially um, you decided you watched the Beatles played the guitar and thought this would be a cool thing to do. At the age of 14, you said you want to maybe pursue this. What was what were you pursuing at this point? Of being in a in a band or Yeah, I was in a few bands. My family had moved from Connecticut to New York City, and I got involved in a band on the Upper West Side for kids in in school called the Sugar Blues Band. We used to play at the Kitty shows at uh, the Cafe Wa on Saturday mornings. Yeah. And uh, it was a very fertile time if you were a musician, I mean, and songwriter and uh, it was easy to find a basement to rehearse and uh, church socials and school dances and, and that's what I did and we made kids from the east side who were also musicians so it was a very fertile time um, the big change for me was I ran away from home when I was 15 and I got a job playing guitar with Chubby Checker and I traveled around America at 15 wow yeah just bear with us with the sirens outside but we are in New York City so that must have been a hell of an experience it was, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. I was making a lot of money. I was, uh, for my age, I had a tremendous independence. Um, uh, my father had passed away the year before, so my mother was kind of freaking out that, it, but it was like the late 60s and it was a different era. <laughs> so, did you run away because you, for another reason or did you, was it running away because you left to tour? Uh, it was just I was ready for my independence. I didn't have a driver's license, but I was feeling very confident and very independent at 15. So, and and it's it's it's, it's it was a little bit common. One of my um, bandmates that I grew up with in uh, Westport, Connecticut, Charlie Carp, he had uh, around the same time he got a job playing guitar with um, Buddy Miles and went on the road and toured the world with Buddy Miles. Wow. So he was you know basically a you know a step ahead you know i was i was working with chubby checker he's working with buddy miles and hanging out with hendrix and you know the world um but it was a it was a great gig until i got busted for being a minor in the state of california and the local authorities um basically 
had me shipped out of California. They said, oh, we don't care where you go, but you got to get out of California. So I, uh, I had friends in Denver, and I went to live in Denver and played in their bands. So you must have been a pretty decent guitarist at the age of 15 to be able to tour. Yeah, I mean, I had good chops and good ears, and I learned fast, and, uh, and just great camaraderie. Uh, I think the really key thing about being a, a guitar player is to figure out your role fast. So, um, you know, cutting to many years later, working as a producer, uh, I ran a commercial music house in Europe called MZHNF, and uh, producing sessions. One day it could be a, a, f- a full orchestra date, one day it could be a, a jazz trio. And, you know, I worked with people like Ron Carter and um, uh, just a slew of musicians, either jazz or pop. Uh, just a great time in New York where, you know, contractors mattered, copyists mattered. Uh, 802, picking up your, you know, your uh, T&R checks, talent residual checks. I mean, it was just a real business focused on live performance of music. Uh, and I feel really great, uh, really happy that I had a chance to have that experience. Um, today's uh, top guitar players, their living comes from either obviously being associated with a major artist mm-hmm. uh, and or... Uh, making records, uh, being really good engineers, good producers, uh, good musicians, and having great people skills. Right. Uh, or playing on Broadway. Um, I have to ask, and I hope you don't mind, you, you left home at 15, which meant you probably quit school at 15. I don't know if you went back to it. But to then, a few years later, to be running a company and to understand the business side of things, how difficult was that? Well, like any job um it takes a minute to to understand the players mm-hmm. and the environment and it's a great question because i um if people typically fail in new situations it's because they overthink what they think their role is <laughs> if you come into a new uh situation the best thing to do is to uh keep your head down listen more than you talk and get a sense of who the players are and create relationships as opposed to decide you're going to change everything or put your stamp on everything. So that was, I think that perspective kind of came out of working with bands because working with bands, everybody's got a different personality. Drummers have a certain personality, bass players, lead singers, and there's all obviously all sorts of musoid jokes around that. So, um, I think working in bands is a great opportunity to learn how to function in a company. That company had a, uh, the boss was a former sales guy who inherited the company because the old partners got old and basically it was time for them to retire and he inherited the company or he bought them out and he needed a creative person to come in and um, uh, manage the day-to-day production. And I got hired through a, a through a relationship I had with an engineer called Chris Turgeson. We were working together at the Hit Factory on a couple independent record projects, and uh, Chris and I hit it off. And Chris recommended me for this gig, and I got the gig. Interesting. Is it, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, between those two, you also became a recording artist. Is that correct? No, I've never been a recording artist, oh, okay. and uh, and I've never been sort of a functioning out in the world singer songwriter. I typically and I think the reason for that is is that I love great singers. So I've always partnered with really good singers. So in my world, I came up with, in New York, uh, when I was about 12, 13, 14, uh, met uh, 
uh, a young singer actress named Vicky Sue Robinson, and Vicky Sue became part of uh, you know one of the main characters in my personal and professional life, friends, and uh, another guy named Gordon Grody. We got a Gordon and I got signed to RCA Records when we were in our early twenties, and Vicky had just had a hit with Turn to Beat Around, so her producer. Uh, just saw promise in what Gordon and I were writing and Gordon was the artist so my function was typically more as a songwriter lyricist coming up with ideas and uh, of course I think a funny story is is when I was like maybe uh, I don't know 16 or 17 I heard um, Wes Montgomery and I was like completely blown away by Wes Montgomery. I mean, I fell in love with Hubert Laws and The Rite of Spring and that record and Don Sebesky, who I ended up having a relationship with and working with a lot in commercials, uh, and a bunch of other folks like Jimmy Douglas and um, Glenn Daub and uh, Dick Berkey, you know, just these really phenomenal arrangers, Jack Cortner, uh, William Eaton, Leanne Pendarvis. These are all... Uh, Leon is, is, is still super active in the New York music world. He's the musical director uh, of Saturday Night Live, and he has been for like 28 years, something like that. And okay. these are just incredibly literate, uh, gifted arrangers and musicians. So being a part of that uh, history in New York uh, is such a grounding experience. Okay, so what I don't understand is that 17-year-old kid or whatever who got kicked out of California and wound up in Denver. At that point, your pursuit was still to be in a band and, I presume, play and tour. Yeah, just make music. I don't think I was actually thinking that far ahead. Right. I think it was like basically, what's our next gig? What's happening? I had a friend, again, I had a, I had a, I had a, a girlfriend who uh, w got involved in a commune up in Vermont and uh, and had sort of a meltdown there and just said, F that. And her and a few people moved to upstate New York, a town called Fleischman's, New York. And I came to visit from California. At that point in time, um, my hair was down to about <laughs> literally the halfway down my back. I was saying things, I was hitchhiking all over the country with a guitar on my back. And, you know, I had a dog named Gaduna, <laughs> a little white spitz dog. And I was saying things like, oh, wow, man, why do you think they call it the highway? <laughs> so I was, a, you know, I was just a big ass hippie. And, and that's so, how you somehow wound up back in New York? Yeah, when I ended up going to visit my friends in upstate New York. And I was sort of in the middle of my big hippiedom phase. Um, and they had just basically like hippies were non were persona non grata they had just had a meltdown in this commune in vermont and they were like no we're just staying in we don't go out we cut off all our hair we we listen and and this is uh this was the year that uh, tapestry came out they would play tapestry over and over and over again so it turned out that i ended up staying there with my ex-girlfriend uh and uh, uh and we got a gig at this local uh place called Friendship Manor and we had a we started a band called The New Sensations my friend Gordon Grody myself and uh, a, uh, a bass player a uh, friend of ours anyway always a problem finding the right drummer your band's <laughs> as good as a drummer and we, we struggled just like Spinal with Tap yeah it's true it's <laughs> so anyway uh, but that led to um, 
uh, I said getting into West Montgomery and jazz it was like I cut off my hair. All I wanted to do was play chord changes. I felt we we loved songs like like all the Backrack David songs, Promises, Promises, uh, You'll Never Get to Heaven, uh, just. I mean, chord changes, chord changes, chord changes. All I wanted to do was to learn chord changes. The challenge for me was I wasn't that great a jazz impro, impro, single line improviser. Right. Uh, so we uh, we decided that uh, we were all going to move to uh, Boston and go to our girlfriends were going to go to Emerson and we were going to go to Berkeley College of Music. So that's what happened. We moved to Boston and went to Berkeley in like the early 70s. Okay, so did you learn how to read music at this point? Well, I yeah, I... No, I was just, I, no, I hadn't learned how to read music. I was playing by ear, and there was pretty much, there wasn't pretty much anything I couldn't learn. I mean, maybe I couldn't, you know, learn all of the chord changes to the, uh, to the dance sequence and West Side Story at the gym. You know, bop, 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 bop. You know, I probably couldn't sight read that, but I could learn pretty much anything by ear. What do you attribute that to? Uh, paying attention having good teachers I it wasn't told years later actually I had a great experience with William Levitt who was the guitar uh, head of the guitar department at Berkeley at the time and uh, he was my uh, guitar he was my um, my uh, professor for uh, instrument you know for guitar playing and uh, he, we had a great conversation he said well you know if you wanted to work hard you could be another George Benson if you really wanted to focus on that he said I don't really think that's really your path I think you're more of a songwriter and, and he was right um, my interest is uh, the, back to the conversation we were having before we started recording um, the song right. the concept for the song why that matters to me why it's going to matter to anyone else um, and that whole opportunity got fulfilled in Nashville, big time. Uh, I write about it in my book, uh, The Elements of Songcraft, how uh, <laughs> I'm in Nashville and um, I'm driving around and the song's on the radio and I'm, and I'm realizing, wow, my life's at stake 15 seconds into these songs. <laughs> how are they writing songs that do that? So that became my um, interest to find that out. And uh, even though I'd had publishing deals and cuts and some activity and success in New York as a songwriter, it wasn't until I moved to Nashville, which I did in my 40s, by the way. It was like going back to college. Uh, I got a job as a, a waiter in a hotel called the uh, Hermitage Hotel uh, so I could keep my days free to write. And uh, about a year and a half later, I got signed to Sony Music. Uh, and that was uh, just a, a just a great learning experience. All the writers who uh, I had a chance to write with, I used to hang out in in certain uh, restaurants and bars that writers would hang out in, and to cultivate relationships after I got off of work. Can you explain that to me? So, um, time wise, before you got you were talking about being signed to RCA with a, a singer friend of yeah. yours. Yeah. And you were signed as a songwriter at that yeah, point. Yeah, as a songwriter to for the, him or to the. To, the, to RCA Records. RCA Records had a publishing, you know, there's ASCAP or BMI typically, and right. now CSAC, of course, for many years. But uh, those performance rights societies, they each have different companies within these major corporations, record labels. And we got signed uh, to um, Sunbury Music, which was the ASCAP uh, publishing arm of RCA Records. Okay, so can you explain that to uh, How does that happen? How does one become... A songwriter 
for a publishing company? Well, it's very different today, but but it's what's similar is, um, in in my case, and I think it happens a lot today is. Uh, I had a big fan supporter of my writing in Vicki Sue Robinson. So Vicki got signed and she had a, a big record and she introduced uh, her friends to her contacts. And we went in and we played our songs for her producer who also ran the publishing side. He said, yeah, I see this. Let's make a record. I like the songs. And so that's how it happened. I still think that's how it happens today. Um, somebody's got to believe in you. Right. So... But if you're now a song, you're hired by a publishing company as the songwriter, is everything that you write owned by them? Initially, yeah. I mean, this uh, what the typical types of deals that happened back then, and it happened with the Beatles and the Stones, is everybody signed away their, their publishing, right. which represents half the income on a song. As opposed to the writing credits. Writing credits, which is the other half, the other 50%. Uh, it's a little confusing to people who don't know music publishing because when they refer to 100% of writer uh, royalties or writer's share, they're talking about 50 cents. Right. And the other 50 cents represents 100% of the publisher's share of a copyright. And the other part of it, which is sort of overlooked or not as well known, is is that the entity that owns the publishing actually owns control of buying and selling a song. Excuse me, selling the song. The ownership, the 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 percentage of ownership in a in a copyright comes from, and the the ability to hold it or to sell it comes from owning the publisher's share. Okay, so when you're hired and you have this contract, do you go into an office every day and write for X number hours, or how does that work? Well, it, di- it works different ways. Um, at that time, we did. We went into uh, uh, RCA Records. Was at I think a, a, a 1133 uh, 6th Avenue, it's uh, still there. The Steinway, I think Steinway moved into the ground floor there. Um, they used to have a recording, the RCA recording studios used to be on um, 44th Street between, uh, uh, right off of 6th, between 6th and uh, Broadway. Uh, and now it's, I think it's an IRS office, or it was an IRS, it got turned into an IRS office. But at the time we were there, it was great. It was pictures of Elvis and pictures of Dolly Parton, pictures of Jefferson Starship, Jefferson um, Airplane, uh, and all the big, Hall and Oates, all the big artists that were signed to RCA at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we'd go in and write in a, we were actually assigned to work with a, a, a Warren Schatz is the gentleman who signed us at RCA, um, and he uh, he assigned uh, his uh, associate Al Garrison, who was also a staff producer um, at RCA, to work with us. And so Al had a little room behind his office, and we right there. Um, so, and how does that work? Is it like okay, we need to do a song for Jefferson Starship, or is it like how does one? Write songs yeah. like that. Well, that's a great question. Uh, anyway, I'll wrap it up. We were writing songs for Gordon's record and some other artists at the time, but uh, we were focused on writing for, for this project for Gordon. Uh, but cut to uh, living in Nashville and writing for um, for Sony ATV Tree, um, that would work a whole bunch of ways. They have writer rooms. Sony ATV has a, a writer facility called the Firehouse, which is an old fire station uh located um, across the parking lot from their main offices, and that has a bunch of writer rooms and studios in it. So, um, 
Yeah, the Nashville scene is is uh, phenomenal because basically from 10 to 1, people are writing songs, they break for lunch, and from 2 to 4, they might pick up where they left off or they'll go off to another session. So that world of writing songs every day as a, as a way of doing business, uh, as a functioning part of the way songwriters work, that ecosystem there can sustain that. It's, it's, that doesn't happen in New York anymore. There's, there's a very small percentage of people who, who get signed uh, who are writing or working that way. There are still people, but it's New York is in Nashville. Is it's if you're focused on writing songs, you can literally write 35, 40 songs a year. Uh, either you know a percentage by yourself, percentage in collaboration with with other writers. In New York, I think that that falls to you know maybe half of that. I, I don't want to speak in any absolute terms. No, I'm no, just, no. I'm just saying that. Um, the environment in Nashville is very friendly to write a lot of songs. Uh, and the beautiful thing about writing a lot of songs is, is that even if you're a really good writer, uh, 15, uh, 20 of those 40 songs are going to be good. But the other 20, you know, again, it's just, uh, it's, it's like anything else. The, if you have a chance to, to, um, well, I should also say some writers, you Presswood, for example, is a famous songwriter. He lives in Long Island, but he's very famous in Nashville historically. You know, he he might his his output might be very small during the course of the year, but the concentrated effort he puts into each song makes each one a gem. So that's his process. Uh, Can I ask you what time frame this was that you were in Nashville? Uh, yeah, about ninety six to uh, two thousand and three. I got signed uh, in New York. Uh, by a company that had offices in London, New York, and Nashville. So I spent a lot of time uh, between 2003 and 2008 going back and forth to Nashville uh, writing for this company. Okay, so if if you write songs in general, just because that's what you do, versus you write songs for the company, is there a distinction between the two? Like, can you... (laughs) So you go into the office, work from 10 to 6, writing songs for RCA or whoever. Um, but you might have an idea that pops up in your head on the way to work that has nothing to do with any of the projects that you're working on. Is that your song or is that their song? Well, if you're under contract, everything you write technically is their song. Okay. I mean, or if you have a co-publishing deal, half of it is, you know, you, right, right, you right, retain. Right. But, you know, I mean, that's a whole, that's a, uh, that's another podcast to even talk about all those issues around, yeah, you know. But I just find it curious that, yeah. you know, when, once you become a writer for a publishing company, what happens? Then the other thing is when you're writing, because automatically what I think of hits, but that's not necessarily what you're going after when you're writing for these people. Is that correct? Well, you're, you're, you're looking at ideas and you're, you know, you're looking to catch, you know, fire in a bottle. I mean, right. you are looking for a good idea. And then you're also, I mean, if we're talking about, if we're segueing more into quote unquote co-writing or, or, uh, um, you know, at, at this stage of my career, I'm not, I don't typically sit down and write a song for an artist and say, I'm going to write a song today for artist X. Uh, I've I've earned the right <laughs> to to basically look at my heart and and go this is something that matters to me and this is what I want to write and uh, um, 
I feel that I feel like my guidance comes from my heroes of songwriting, the Joni Mitchells of the world, or um, uh, you know uh, the Sarah Bareilleses or the the John Lennons. I mean, you know, the heroes of song, whether they be Nashville based or you know country music based or British based or American based, you know, Backrack David. You know, there are all these giants out there. Uh, they aim so high in their aspirations to write songs. That's kind of my North Star. I'm not looking to write another song. Right. I'm looking to write something that basically adds to the vocabulary of people who aim that high. But when one talks about the music business, often people think about hits. But hits, yeah. is, a, hits is a completely different thing. Yeah. Well, you know, remember, I mean, I'm a man of a certain age at this point. And the reality is, it's you know the music business is a youth and beauty business. I I work a lot with with eighteen year olds and twenty four year olds, and you know I, I I'm, I'm a adjunct professor at the New School and uh, um, at NYU, so I work with a lot of I don't even want to call them developing, even though you could call them developing songwriters, uh, and I've watched the progress some of these. Uh, students and now former students and friends or colleagues or just people I applaud in the world. I watch how much they grow. And it's it's their time. It's their it's their time to co write and to to figure out what matters to their audience. Um uh, I'm not I still compete in that world and I still pitch songs and I'm still active, but I see my role uh, it's very hard for me with with uh, the thing about having success in the, in, in the music business as a songwriter is that it, it it gets you entree into the best rooms to write with other successful songwriters of, of your period and that is uh, that's a priceless opportunity so again somebody's got to believe in you to put you in that room with somebody who's more successful than you but that belief or the quality of song doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a hit it has to be a good song. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, what what's a hit is determined by a lot of factors. Mm -hmm. In my book, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting to me, at least. Uh, I really wanted to stay away from this idea, idea of like, you know, the you know 187 steps to songwriting hit songwriting success. I, I I did not want to have that approach. My 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 book is called The Elements of Songcraft, the Contemporary Usage Guide to Writing Songs That Last. So I looked at like well what lasts, as opposed to what's a hit. Um, I mean can can I get, ask you what you imagine, how you view a hit because you're the one who's writing all these songs. You're you know the industry. What is a hit to you? Is it just something that's kind of it's paid a great, for? Well, if we're talking about we're 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 having this interview at uh, you know in midsummer of two thousand and nineteen, um, hits are rhythmic driven melodic melodies, <laughs> rhythmic driven, <laughs> um, uh, a subject topic that everybody wants to hear. The song category is very. There's no having to figure out what anyone's singing about. If they're singing about, you know, um, uh, a breakup or they're sing singing about, um, everybody knows exactly what somebody's singing about. The other thing about a contemporary song that lasts right now is you're delivering at least five hooks. So the song structure is very different than 
uh, song structures maybe 20 years ago or, or even 50 years ago. So um, you've got rhythmic driven melody, you've got phenomenal production. Um, the trend in the last year or two has been to uh, actually get away from chords and basically let the bass lines basically establish the space so that a vocal can sing over it. Right. So you're not filling up the middle with big chord spreads. So that's you know a real factor in songs like, uh, well, it's a few years old, but Julia Michaels' um, Issues is a good example of that. And you hear it a lot, even there's a new song out now with uh, Ed Sheeran and Justin Bieber that's the same thing. It's just basically got a, just a rhythmic kind of uh, groove, kind of melodic bass line, or actually just staccato kind of single note bass line moving. Uh, not a lot of chords. So how aware are you of what's going on out there? Like I know for me, I'm not. I'm not very aware of what's in the top 30. But how aware? I'm pretty aware. I mean, I, I listen. I'd say once a week I go to Spotify or, you know, and I typically, uh, or Apple Music, and I typically listen to what's, and I, you know, I read Billboard every week. I've got a dear friend who uh, gifted me a subscription to Billboard. Thanks, Robin Arrold. You rock. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm pretty much... In, in touch with what's going on. As as you grow older, and I don't mean to cast age on you, but but as as you grow older, how has your view of songwriting changed from that kid that was twelve walking home from school and making funny jokes to being a staff writer in Nashville to teaching music and songwriting? Has it changed a lot, or, or does the basic idea behind songwriting is still the same? That's a great question. Um, people are are listening to hear their life in your song. Mm -hmm. So I like to say you need to hold, you need to learn how to hold the mirror up at eye level so that they can see themselves in your song. Um, so you better number one be writing about something that matters. Uh, if you can figure out what matters to you, then you can probably figure out what matters to other people. And if you can write it in a way that's visual and I mean, this is, you know, this is where it gets, uh, this is, you know, this is the, this is uh, what's missing from the Hallmark card moment of writing songs. I mean, it feels, I like to say, and I tell this in my book and to people who work with me, um, it feels so good to write a song, people convince how good the song is with how good it feels to write it. Uh, that's the one big problem facing songwriters. The other big problem facing songwriters is that typically people aim way too low in their aspiration for the song. So if I've learned anything over the years, it's basically I, I want to, you know, certain writers are looking to basically move vocabulary around in a song. Uh, I mean, the blues is very a great example. You know, there's people, you would know this better than me because this is your area of expertise. Um, there are really traditionalist, hardcore blues people who they don't want anybody messing with the the blues and the structure. <laughs> right. Yeah. I had a I had a, the good fortune of working with Danny Korchmeyer and uh, Charlie Carp in a band of theirs called uh, Slow Leak. I got invited to write a bunch of songs with them mm -hmm. uh, when I moved back from Nashville in the early two thousands, and they were Danny Korchmeyer is like yo so far ahead of the curve as a producer as a guitar player as a thinker as a writer and that's what they were doing they were basically uh, as they made more and more records they were getting more they called I think they called their last record 21st century blues um, 
So you're either someone who's looking to, to uh, rearrange vocabulary or as hard as it sounds, are you the kind of writer who wants to invent vocabulary? I mean, Lennon did it. Bowie did it. I mean, they might have used other tools like R&B, but, uh, or um, Bob Marley did it. Bob Marley was a huge doo-wop fan, and you could, it's, as was John Lennon. You could hear it in their chord structures and their melody writing. Uh, but they just made other music with it, and they just grew and grew and grew. So if you have, that's where I live aspirationally. I'm, you know, uh, when I lived in Nashville, I was never going to be a hardcore country writer like my friend Steve Leslie, you know, who grew up in Kentucky, um, uh, or many of the other wonderful writers I got to work with. So, um, you know, my chance came from... Uh, in hopefully inventing something you're seeing a, a new way into basically finding a new angle on something old which I think is what a big part of what songwriters do if songwriters are, if you're in a room with a guy like Steve Leslie and you're in a co-write session and you're looking at ideas and song titles and ways to write a song and that's another interesting aspect of, of a lot of songwriting that happens in Nashville yeah, people can play a lick and come up with a cool melody or come, but typically songs start with a with a concept, an idea. When when you write, I mean, you've written many many songs. Do you know immediately if a song is good? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I I feel like if I have so I keep an extensive list of song titles. I'm stopping on the street like a pesky tourist in Midtown. <laughs> You know, to to type in my phone an idea. So you're walking down the street, all of a sudden something pops into yes. your head. I'm I'm constantly, I, I have a lot of um, I, I have a lot of rituals around what I do to to develop ideas and titles because my thinking is it's the idea that wins. And it's always does it always start with a song title for you? Not always. It can start with a it can start with a piece of music. Uh, let's see. Uh, I was uh, I was living in Nashville and I. Um, on 21st Street, there was a store called Cotton Music, and I walked in there, and I picked up a guitar, and I played this chord. And I was like, wow. The guitar, that's, that's one reason I think I might have a lot of guitars in this room, <laughs> because they all can inspire you to do different things. So right. that sound leads to a... Sometimes it's a it's it's just a the sound of a of a of a melody or a, a, a set of chord changes that can inspire something, but typically I don't get heavily. I had a writing session this week, and and uh, we had some ideas and we tried some different things, but it wasn't until we just really hit on a title and a concept, and then we go through what I call the debate team stage, where <laughs> we basically talk about how we could write that idea. How do you know when a song is worth pursuing? Because sometimes you struggle through that, and if it's worth spending more hours to it, or vice versa. How do you know when it's you've worked on it enough? Like, do you know? Does that come easy? Yeah, I think so. I, I I've written probably over six hundred songs, six seven hundred songs. So and I've collaborated with hundreds of people and written a lot on my own and. And, ex and experience the, the process of, of, of writing, rewriting, demoing, re-demoing, making masters, cutting songs in studios. 
going on the way to the studio realizing oh my god we have to come up with a completely different arrangement that was that one's not going to work or, or get inspired by so I'll, I'll literally if i hear something that inspires me on the radio when driving to a session i might change the whole arrangement based on something i heard uh or you know i'm fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians and um who are also great arrangers themselves so you know, taking input from from the crew of people you work with is uh, is super important as well in terms of turning something that has some potential into something that has more potential. Um, you know, I, I write with so sometimes uh, I'll collaborate with people and it's not an idea that I'm feeling particularly strong about, but my co-writers are feeling strong. So I basically I take uh, sometimes it's based on an idea I've come up with that they've you know they're excited about. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a, again, in collaboration, it, it really, I think, helps to be able to play a few different positions. Right. Some, sometimes it's your idea and you're leading that idea. Sometimes uh, it's someone else's idea and you're contributing to the idea. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, depending on, you know, the circumstances are all different. Does it ever surprise you that you present a song to somebody that you might not be very happy with? And they love it, or vice versa. That's something you think is amazing, and they go, "Hmm." Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, if you if you play things for for twenty people, you're going to get twenty different mm -hmm. responses, or relatively. Um, I think it's important to understand who your audience is. Right. So, um, I was maybe maybe three months ago. I was in a writing session on a boy band song we were pitching for um, to uh, boy bands in uh, Korea, and. Uh, you know, compared to some of the material that I feel more uh, emotionally close to, you know, I mean, it's a good song, and 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 I'll play it for, you know, I'll play if I play it for an eighteen-year-old, uh, they go, man, that's really cool. Are they responding to the production or the song or the vibe or, you know, uh, I mean, I don't think I do bad work. Uh, some work is more inspired, but again. Uh, it's who's your audience. I think that's a big factor in. Uh, are you? Are, did you come up with an idea that that made sense for this this song that we pitched to this Korean uh, for for the Korean boy bands? Um, it's a song called Replay. Every time I think of you, I hit replay. The way my body moved with you blew me away. You know, I can't fall asleep tonight. Guess I got in too deep tonight. Uh, every time I think of you, I think of you. I hit replay, 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 replay. Okay, it's a it's a valid song. It's about new love. It's about being in that moment where you're you're you fall in love with somebody. It's totally valid. Right. It, but the production and the uh, the singer we got to sing it, who was 17, it's aimed at a certain audience. Um, very different than a song of mine called "The Fate of Glass," which is basically a song about someone. Uh, in a relationship that's failing and there's too much at stake to, to bail out. They have to somehow uh, kind of make patience in, in the face that a relationship is, um, is really over. And all the energy and dreams associated with investing in that relationship, you know, have proved, um, you know, heartbreakingly fruitless. So, uh, yeah, that's a that's a great song for another type of audience. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I pride myself in being able to 
to figure that component out before I write a song. What's the emotion? Who's the audience? What type of song is it? And and uh, with those guardrails or weather vanes, I can figure out how to generally head off into a direction. Uh, whether, you know, again, if you write 40 songs a year, uh, even if you're a good writer, you know, 20 might be very good. They may not last or matter to anybody. But if you break it down, the other 20, you know, song 19 is, well, it's pretty good. Song 14 is like, man, that's pretty amazing. Song 9 is like, damn. I want to hear that again and again and again. And songs uh, four, three, two, one might have a chance of really lasting. And if you do that for twenty years as a as a composer or writer, then you're going to build up a catalog of songs that might have a chance of lasting. But of course, you have to figure out how to get them into a marketplace too, which is also a big part of success. Right. So you, before you re re you reference the the um, the idea of being able to work with somebody who's a great songwriter, that it's a it's a great opportunity to work with a better songwriter. What did you learn from that experience of working with great songwriters? Like, did they have something that you saw that, that was different from other people? I think, well, everybody's a little bit different. So um, some people are really stingy with, like, what, what can get into the song, whether melodically or lyrically. So... Um, so literally they will fight tooth and nail for <laughs> for a line either staying in a song or not accepting a line right because they they understand that the the best writers understand that there's a certain amount of momentum has got to be building up within the, the the course of the song form as the song moves through um its development melodically as well uh you know, other uh other writers i learned just staying in the process. You know, the muse can be hitting hard and great and everything's flowing and then some days it's not. Well, on the days that it's not, you might get a call to write with somebody who's, um, uh, it's a great opportunity in terms of their talent or where they are in the business as a, as a business opportunity to advance your career. You know, <laughs> you better have some ideas <laughs> in, in storage. And, that, and that's how I developed my relationships in Nashville. I would, when I didn't really know anybody, and, and I would uh, make friends with people. Uh, I basically, uh, I, had, I had a conversation with a, a membership um, person at BMI in Nashville, a guy named David Preston, and uh, we'd become friends. And uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of years after I'd been in Nashville, I said to him, "So, David, what a, you know, how do people, um, what do people think of me? You know, if my name comes up in a conversation, what do what people say?" And he was like. He was real straight ahead with me. He said, good guitar player, good ideas. That's nice. Yeah, it was good. I'll, I'll take that. Um, you know, I mean, the thing about at least my time in Nashville, I would, I, was, I would get to hang out with some, you know, some, you know, giants of music publishing and writers and uh, uh, producers. And it really was like, you speak when you're spoken to. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I mean, you're you're just around. Uh, people have such strong historical relationships with each other. You don't want to insert yourself right. in in those in a way that you you just learn the respect of of you want to listen to these people talk to each other because they're saying crazy stuff and you just feel kind of fortunate that you're you're uh, you're at the table and you you know you get to you drink in with these folks and. Uh, 
and they're sharing some great stories and uh, and the people that they know and who their families were and who their you know godparents were. I mean, it's it's a it's such a wonderful community that way. I, you know, New York is uh, everything's just too busy here. It's a different rhythm. What made you come back? Um, well, I was uh, I I needed to come back for some family reasons. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, but I still have a relationship with the town, and uh, and my friends there, and writers, and uh, I work with a lot of writers here who um, I totally encourage to spend as much time in Nashville as they can. I just think it it's a great place to learn how to get better. Yeah. The other thing, if I'm not mistaken, you were also a session musician. Tell me about that and how you kind of got into that role. Well. Um, you know, at that time, there were there was a lot of session work. There was demos for songs, there was commercials, there was records, there was film scoring, there was Broadway. Because the hierarchy of, of gigs in in the '60s, late '60s, '70s, and and even early '80s, mid '80s, it was like record date, film date, commercial date. Uh, you know, maybe touring. Uh, I was fortunate. I worked. Uh, I got a job t uh, playing guitar for Asher and Simpson, touring with them at, at the height of their uh, their commercial success as as artists. And uh, so they, Valerie Simpson, who's just one of the most phenomenal writer and singers, and and uh, people in the know know that she's basically in the hierarchy of the you know top one, two, or three four singers on the planet, you know, R&B or classical or, you know, she's just so gifted. Um, and she did a lot of commercial work. So she didn't want to be out of town missing that work. So we'd go out on a Thursday and come back on a Sunday night and we'd tour like that. So, so, and that was good for me too, because I was playing on sessions and I was, I, I didn't want to be out of town. So that was kind of the best of both worlds. And then after that, you've got Broadway and then after Broadway, you'd have like club dates, and uh, and after club dates, you'd have like wedding dates. That was kind of, you know, this is the big challenge for musicians today, since the recording business in New York doesn't sustain, uh, you know, only a handful of musicians can can uh, are sustained by the recording uh, session world in New York. Um, you know, it's not the same business at all. So Broadway becomes a huge factor or having, you know, a gig with a major artist and touring. Those are those are the two uh, gigs that people are super sought after. I mean, there's, you know, a couple of TV shows, but that's not, that's going to be good for, you know, for a dozen, you know, two dozen musicians. Right. So, you know, th that said, I've seen the, the, you know, my friends and the children of my session musician friends and singer-songwriter friends, uh, they've managed to figure it out. You know, they're they're working on Broadway, or they're working for major artists, and they're recording, and they're producing, and they're writing. So, um, you know, again, I think the very best people figure it out. Um, but at my time, there was a lot of work, so I was able to uh, uh, I was able to sustain a career, and I uh, I got friendly uh, through a singer friend. I got friendly again connections. I got friend. I got introduced to a a, a, um, a top contractor at the time in New York, a woman named Sefer Herman. Sefer, love you. Um, whose father was Sam Herman, who was uh, a copyist and uh, worked for a lot of the big band uh, leaders like 
uh, I think he did charts for, um, did the copying work for, for if, if Basie or Ellington uh, and lots of others. And he had a copy shop on 7th Avenue across from the old Carnegie Deli, I think 55th Street. And uh, that was just a haven. I met Sephra and Sephra, you know, gave me a shot and I started working on a lot of sessions that Sephra contracted and a lot of commercial dates and some record dates and uh, it really gave me a, you know, a way into the New York session business. I asked this a lot of musicians who've spent their whole career in music, which I think is a difficult thing to do. Um, but you know, when when you look at that young kid who listened to the Beatles, the one that got kicked out of California, to writing songs in Nashville, what attributes to the success that you've been able to maintain? A career in music all your life. Well, when you when you talk about success, is is success engagement and doing what you love more than you know making a million, two million dollars, you know, and holding on to it and investing it. And I mean, there's lots of ways you could measure success. You know, as you get older, yeah, you want to have enough income and uh, to live well and to do the things you want to do. Uh, I like you know as you get older you need a big stick to ward off the reality of getting old that's for sure and that big stick is a lot of money mm-hmm. uh so but the fact sure. that you've done this something you even told me before the interview that's something you still love doing all your life yeah, yeah. i mean uh people i get asked questions all the time from some of the younger collaborators so how old are you you know and it's like well <laughs> You know, it's a uh, you know my I, I look a lot younger than my age, and I think it's definitely to the fact that you know I wake up every day and look at all these. There's like 30 instruments in this room. I get a chance to, you know, to to make music and to think about what's in my heart. And uh, you know, uh, by the way, it's all it's not it's not all touchy feely. It's uh, I love attitude songs. I'm a huge, uh, you know, I love prince to death that was a sad sad day when he <laughs> left us uh earth wind and fire um uh bruno mars i mean i love the fact that bruno mars you know raided his parents vinyl and the system and uh and it's just making these great entertainment attitude records and um so um i think engagement of in terms of uh doing what you love is is an element of success so um I had a, I had a, um, there's a bluegrass musician in, uh, uh, in Nashville named Kathy Kiavala, and she was my landlady uh, for a time I was in Nashville, and she gave me one day, she gave me this, um, this mug, and on the mug it, it had the definition of musician, and it was something like, um, uh, one who produces musical notes in, with melody and rhythm, and, uh, who scrimps, uh, complains, uh, finger points to heaven, and generally has a good time. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, if you know, the, there's, uh, you know, is it just kind of stuck in my head? It's like, yeah, musicians have a good time, uh, and if you can figure out a way, uh, I mean, if you think about it, it's it's sort of where um, creativity and your social skills come together, and uh, uh, where you you figure out where you fit in. It's just like. You know, some of the best session musicians that I've ever seen, uh, a guy like Hiram Bullock. Okay, Hiram Bullock passed away, I don't know, I think six or eight years ago. There was, a, I think Marcus Miller was just talking about that on, on Facebook 
post how I think it was six or eight years ago that Hiram passed away. You know, when that guy left, uh, something went extinct in the world. This guy had this incredible ability to make other musicians have a reaction to him and play things they'd never dream of playing. <laughs> so, uh, and part of that kind of talent, I, I, I use him as a, as a template because you come into a recording session, uh, put a, people put charts in front of you, uh, and talk about what the song is, the arranger or the writer talks about what the song is, the people who win and get called back are the ones who figure out like how to play a part that fits with, with what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. And there are certain musicians that have a gift of finding that right part fast. And that distinguishes them as a great studio player. Uh, another fabled New York studio uh, session guitar player, Hugh McCracken, who also passed away a few years ago. Um, he, you know, he was, his genius was to knowing what not to play uh, as well as what to play. Right. So. Um, I have to wrap this up, but there's a couple of things I need to ask you about. One is the, you, you teach writing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was fortunate when I moved back from Nashville, I was asked by, um, um, the uh, the membership folks at BMI, Charlie Feldman and Samantha Cox at the time, uh, who were actually still at BMI, uh, if I would uh, be interested in t teaching a, a workshop on songwriting. And I did, and we started collectively the uh, BMI Contemporary Songwriters Workshop, and that ran for about 14 years. Uh, and then in 2014, about five years ago, I took it private to uh, reach out to ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC writers to kind of open it up to the community. And that's been going for five years. And that led to me um, writing this book called The Elements of Songcraft, which is, uh, you can find it on Amazon, folks, and uh, pre-order it. It comes out uh, October 15th of this year. And also, the, the experience I got teaching this workshop for BMI led me to, uh, I'm a bit of a hustler. I mean, I pick up the phone and I cold called uh, some people at uh, NYU and the New School, and I basically uh, interviewed with them and, and got an opportunity to start teaching at the college level, which really opened my eyes to the to who the audience of students were and their, their talent, uh, and also what it takes to teach a 15-week college course syllabus of songwriting. I gotta sh do a shout out to uh, Pat Patterson, who basically invented the field of writing songs at the college level with Berkeley. I think, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure exactly the date, but I think somewhere in 1985, he started you know, to teach songwriting for, for Berkeley, get them interested in it as a subject. And that's revolutionized the whole world of, uh, of songwriting training. I think one thing that's interesting is that I've given up thinking uh, this person is, uh, is gonna make it, this person's got some work to do, this person's, uh, I've given up that perspective at all. I've, n I've watched people, some people have more natural talent, some people work harder, some people have a combination of both, some people just, they just blossom at a certain time. So, uh, so I, all the people who come to me, I just say, you're my, you're my favorite people because you want to get better. <laughs> my second question is going to be about your book, um, but you did kind of answer it. But tell me about that writing process. Was that a difficult thing? Uh, it wasn't difficult. It was just a lot of concentration. So I said, my mom was an English teacher and a poet. So when I was a kid, she introduced me to the elements of style, 
the Shrunken White Book, which is a writing guide for English language uh, uh, grammar and content. And uh, I realized after what I learned in Nashville, and when I started teaching at BMI, uh, I realized I've got to come up with my own vocabulary. I can't do what Pat's doing. I can't do with some other people doing. I've got to come up with my own way of figuring out how to talk about songwriting based on my experience. And I did, and it turned into this book, The Elements of Songcraft, um, which I was one of my students introduced me to an agent, and the agent uh, liked the idea. She gave me a format to put my idea into. I spent a few months doing that, and then her and her uh, agency signed me to uh, to their company, and then they started to sell the proposal. And we it was an interesting process. We got a lot of rejections. We got a lot of interest, um, and then the right person came along and said I love the idea for this book I want to buy it and they did and it, I rewrote the book maybe four or five times and each time it got stronger and stronger so uh, and uh, uh, and that's led to some wonderful opportunities with uh, Berkeley NYC Berkeley uh, has moved into the New York area uh, I still have a relationship with NYU and the new school uh, but I've also developed this new relationship with Berkeley which has been really great they've asked me to write course syllabuses for them on songwriting and I've gone to uh, their uh, Valencia campus to do some master classes uh, and I continue to work with Songwriters Academy for you can find me online uh, I do workshops in New York pretty much every month uh, and other specialized private training and work like that well thank you so much for doing this and I know we just talked to each other last week and I appreciate you allowing me into your place in such short notice. And I really appreciated you doing this. Thank you. Well, I appreciate uh, all of your comments and thoughts and questions, Mako. It's been a pleasure to meet you and uh, appreciate our time together. Thanks for doing this. Thank you.